What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest is the one and only Bonnie Raitt who's on tour in support of her new album, Just Like That. Bonnie, good to have you on the podcast. Nice to be with you, Bob. So what inspired you to cut this album? Oh, I cut my record so I have some new songs to play on the road. That's always the pretty much the only reason I do it, and I, I love having new stuff to play, and my fans probably enjoy it too, and... Uh, it's always daunting to not repeat yourself. Each record has another batch of love gone astray. And uh, how are you going to say something new after that many records? But I managed to, when I get the songs compiled and I head in the studio, but I, I've always got kind of a five-year ahead of me plan of, you know, holding the band and the crew and which halls we're going to book a year in advance. And that was interrupted by COVID, of course, but the plan was still, you know, every after the two-year tour to promote the record, that's about a year to prepare another one and a year to make it and get ready for the, the big tour in another two years. So it's kind of been the same since 1971. And you mentioned love gone astray. Is that something because that's what music normally is? Is that your life? Why do you characterize the songs that <laughs> it, way? I, it was a little tongue in cheek about, um, you know, if everybody got along, I wouldn't have anything to sing about. You know, the, the, the kind of songs I sing about mostly are love uh, stories of different aspects of love, you know, betrayal or longing or there you go again or, you know, why did you do it? Whatever. It's just, you know, some of the songs like one that you love, not the only one, Mr. Brady's tune um, is about a true love song. You know, that's a beautiful I do rarely. There's only cut about two or th two <laughs> songs about love that are really when it's working out. Okay, people learn from the songs you sing. Did you learn anything? A lot of the songs you didn't write, and the more you perform them, the insights come to you relative to love in life? 
Absolutely. I, I, I pick the songs because they have something to say to me that I need to hear. And I, when I sing it, it, it the message comes through. And, um, you know, I, I hope that fans find something worthwhile in it. You know, I seem to be striking a chord or I probably wouldn't get the opportunity to make another record or it would fail and then I would hang it up and stay home. Um, I think that the mix of songwriters that I pick from are some of my favorite artists anyway, their whole repertoire. But when I find a song, I know it's right for me and it's got something to say for me at the time. And what is the process? Are people always sending you demos or are you searching or you just start doing it when you start a project? I'm always on the hunt. Um, I always go back in my own library of things that I, artists that I love and go back and revisit Keith Richards for solo albums, you know, Bruce Hornsby's third album, Jackson Brown, you know, there, there's, there's artists that are friends of mine that I love, Little Feet and people like that, John Hyatt, that I just listen to for pleasure, but I'm also cocking an ear for giving a second listen to some of the, the, the songs that have kind of been tucked away in my back pocket that I might end up cutting. But for many, many years, probably 40 years, I listened to most, if not all, of the unsolicited cassettes that people sent me. Um, then they became CDs. And in all those years, I'd never found one song I could do. So I, I gave myself a break after 40 years to say, <laughs> you know, I think you can probably just wait for your friends to send you songs. or you. So I call up my pals and say, who have you been listening to? And I listen to, I do a lot of research. I read a lot of reviews. I listen to a lot of um, interesting things that people turn me on to. And then journalists turn me on to them. It's a constant hunt. So how'd you meet Lowell, George? Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I think you're one generation younger than me, or at least. But there was a band out of LA called Fanny, which was the first all-female band that could really play well. I saw him um, at the Fillmore East. Oh, you did. There you go. So <laughs> yes. Fanny were friends of mine. I think we were all on Warner's. At, at, I don't even know if they were on Warner's. I want to say. Yeah, they were. were. Yeah. That's why I met them because we, you know, Alan Toussaint and the Meters and James and Ryan and Randy were all new. You know, when I first joined the label, it was because of the the roster that they had. And I became really good friends with June Millington and the band. And I used to stay at Hedy Lamar's old house up from the Chateau Marmont on off whoa, whoa, Sunset. Whoa, 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 a little bit slower. Hey, yeah, who, they had, who they rented, the okay. they rented, they rented uh, Hedy Lamar's old house right up from the iconic Chateau Marmont above Sunset Strip down from the Roxy and the Tower Records. And when I came out from Cambridge, I would stay with them. And that's when I heard Little Feet's second album and I went crazy and June Millington introduced me to Lowell George. And was there an instant connection? How did you ultimately form the bond and go on the road and make music, recorded music together? Absolutely instant connection. He was a fan of mine. I was a fan of his. We both couldn't believe we were from L.A., but that was the same with Ry Cooter. You know, it's sort of the kind of, uh, kind of shallow surf music scene that was in my junior high school all of a sudden turned into you know, these super cool roots music people. And uh, I just, you know, Lowell was the one who turned me on to how to keep my slide note holding longer. He gave me this MXR compressor pedal and changed my whole slide style. So that was a fantastic thing. But 
I, I mean, along with Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan, I think Lowell was one of the greatest guitar players that's ever lived. Okay, getting to the third album, Taking My Time, I Feel the Same. On the second side, who plays the solo, you or Lowell? Lowell plays the solo. That's what I thought, but then I was yeah. sort of saying, it's so... The great thing about Lowell is he knew how to be subtle and leave things out, which in a world of obviousness is very rare. Yes, I completely agree. And, and you know, there would be times when he was in the studio and just overlaying many, many slide parts, almost like an arranger, you know, putting horn lines and string lines over his own songs. And sometimes it would get crowded. But by the time it came out as a record, he do, he was a pretty... He was pretty good at being tasteful with his edits and not over not over sweetening the pot. Okay, he was involved in the production of Taking My Time and then he was not. What what went on there? Uh that was a kind of a personal thing that happened with us. Um he also wanted to play slide on more songs than I wanted him to. I said, "Hey, you know, I love the way you play, but you got to make some room for me here." And uh but it was more like a personal thing that was between us. And um, I asked my friend John Hall from Orleans to come out and Taj to come down. And Taj and John had been in a band together. Uh, John was one of the guitar players when John Simon was producing the big tuba band with Taj. And jo John Hall lived in Woodstock and played on my second album. So they, they both agreed to come in and help finish the record. Okay. Even to this day, High-profile artists, mostly men. What was it like back in the early seventies, being the only woman in the room? In many cases, it seemed pretty standard. I mean, there was a lot of people that I admired, you know, Joan Baez and Judy Collins and Odetta and you know Peter Paul and Mary. There was a lot of women that were always part of making records, and they picked their material and worked with their partner producer and. Um, I, I never experienced any sexism that way or, or you know, maybe. And also because I was a musician and then those women are musicians as well, but because I was a guitar player, um, I got some respect at, at an age that would probably be surprising, you know, not for a guy to get at 21, but for a woman to get to play pretty good blues guitar. It got my foot in the door. That's why I got my deal, I think. And then, but, Men uh, always have romance on their mind, and oh, when you're I the only, I think that's reducing people to that. And women have the same exact, you know, it, romance is one of the things on both of our minds, and the people in between as well. Love is just part of the human condition. But when you work in an office with someone, or on tour, or in the studio, relationships happen, as we know. But the, if you're famous, then they get written about more, and. As you become famous, do you have to fend off more approaches? The guys might have to fend off my approaches. <laughs> no, I was pretty pretty steady. I mean, it just wasn't. I didn't. I didn't see any difference in my world between a chemical, you know, chemistry attraction to you know someone in the group that you're working with is wasn't any different than from being in college. You know, it's just one of those things. Um, you have to be careful in any shipboard romance when you're out on tour if you're involved with someone in the band and it doesn't work out and you're still going to be on tour for the rest of the year that's a really tricky 
tricky situation, just like it is in an office romance. You know, they it's frowned upon, but you can't stop it. Okay, you went to Radcliffe for a year. No, it was at, I went to college at Harvard. Radcliffe doesn't have any classes, so the women's part of Harvard University is Harvard Radcliffe. Now it's completely combined, but. Um, I think the ratio is four to one guys to women. I don't know what it is anymore, but I went for a couple of years. So what did your parents say when you dropped out to make music? I took a semester off to hang out with the older blues guys that I loved, and they thought that was great. And um, they just said, you know, you're going to have to support yourself. If you're dropping out, then you get to get a job. And I got to travel around all these blues festivals with, with Dick Waterman and hang out with Big Arthur Crudup and Robert Pete Williams and Buddy Guy and Junior Wells and Sun House and Fred McDowell. It was an education and an opportunity I knew I would never have again. And I could always go back to school. And I told that to the college admissions folks. They said, come back when you're ready. So I went back for a year and started to play in folk clubs Um just to make some extra money during my time off. And next thing I knew, I started getting asked back. And I had some, you know, my boyfriend was a booking agent, so he put me on the show with Cat Stevens and opening for James Taylor and some blues people. And it was kind of a hobby that was a sideline for me until all of a sudden Nat Weiss with, uh, you know, said to me, do you want to, you know, there's some interest in signing you with the label. And I said, if you... If you can get somebody to give me complete artistic control, I'll I'll leave college and make a make a record, and he did. So, ever any regrets that you didn't finish? Not one, because as a social activist, which was what my chosen field was, I knew that being a musician, I could raise money and more attention for the causes that I cared about, which happened right away in the women's movement and the Vietnam War. I mean, I was doing big giant rallies on Boston Common by the time, you know, making much more of an impact than I could have if I joined the Peace Corps. And other than being in Cambridge, did you actually learn anything in classes or being in the dorm or being amongst the student population? Or in retrospect, that just got you into a place where you could get started on your musical career? Couldn't have cared less about starting a music career. I was absolutely loving majoring in African studies and social relations. I, I've always loved school. I always wanted to work for the American Friends Service Committee, and I was um, couldn't get enough of classes. And the cool thing about Harvard was you could take senior level. You know what? In regular regular, a lot of colleges you have to take a survey course for freshman year. And then sophomore year, and then you can't really specialize in your master until the last couple of years. And and with Harvard, you could actually mix it up however you want, as long as you got a year of humanities and social science. And um, you know, by the end of the four years, so I got I dove right into my African studies and social relations, you know, serious focus. And I love being in school. And you know, they've always said. If I want to come back, I got the Harvard Arts Medal a few years ago, and they said, you can come back and finish if you want, but I don't think it held me back to not have a degree. <laughs> okay. So you grew up in L.A. Where in L.A.? I was right in the hills above Studio City, and then I spent every summer in the Adirondacks while my dad was doing summer stock. So I, even though I would say that I was raised in L.A., but my formative important part of my influences were all east coast up east coast kids that went up to the adirondacks at my quaker camp 
and you, were you formed by what was going on, the ideas at the camp, or was this how you were brought up with your family and these ideas? Well, we were a Quaker. You know, my folks converted to being um, peace activists and Quakers and kind of rejecting the more formalized constriction of what religiosity and churches and formal religions brought. So they they were much more into, uh, you know, the Quaker meeting where you're, you're center in, nobody's higher than someone else, anyone can stand up and share, um, act, social activism, being of service. I just, you know, that's the ethos that I was raised in, and I was really proud of it, and I hung out with a lot of other Quaker families. Um, and then in my summertime, my family's friends started a Quaker camp, which was very international and not focused on competitive sports or, you know, it, it was just a lot of, you know, humanitarian, humanism, international counselors and, and campers. So it was really a great breeding ground for my values and my music and that's where the folk music counselors you know the counselor for folk music at that camp when i was 10 made a huge influence on me and all those college kids were swept up in the folk revival of the early 60s well i certainly remember hearing blowing in the wind at summer camp and other songs we sit around what were the songs that, that they were bringing to the camp that you were hearing and learning well, I, I was eight or nine, and I, I loved Odetta's records. I loved Joan Baez. I, I taught myself to play guitar based on um, those two records, and then I loved Peter, Paul, and Mary, and, you know, all the folk music artists, and I read Sing Out every month and joined at SNCC and Core. You know, I was out in L.A., but I couldn't wait to be a beatnik and get to college. I wish I could have just left, and you know, at 13 and put on a turtleneck and moved to Greenwich Village, but... Um, it, what I got from that was the times they were changing. That that album of Bob Dylan's really changed my life. But even though I was, you know, Pete Seeger fan and Joan Baez, and our family marched in peace marches, and you know, we were very much involved in the civil rights movement as well. The the musical connection of folk music that Bob Dylan's albums, when he be, when especially times they were changing, was seminal in my life. And then Joan Baez's activism, I think, was a great model for me as well okay i think that was the third album the first album was mostly cover second was free will with a lot of songs other people covered when did you actually get into dylan with that third album where he was always on the scene and you were aware of him you know i i you know as as a 12 year old i didn't have any income to go buy records or a car to go drive to the store but i um i got at camp i listened to my counselor's records so i was aware of the first two albums but I, I saved my money and bought the, the Times They Are Changing album. Okay, and you went to high school in L.A. too? I went to one year of high school, and then I went to a Quaker boarding school in Poughkeepsie the last two years of high school because my dad got a new Broadway show, and he was going to be trying it out on the road for a year. So us, my brothers and I scattered to the winds, and I couldn't wait to go to what the school version of what my summer camp had been so the last two years were on the hudson river which i loved because the whole time i was in la i couldn't wait to get back east well that was funny because we were all back east trying to get to la i know isn't that funny <laughs> but um what kind of kid were you growing up the kind who was the leader had a lot of friends you know a loner what kind well, I came out of the box pretty extroverted, so I was the song leader at our social camp, you know, at our club, and 
I was in with the hip kids and I was in with the intellectual kids as well. And I kind of floated around um, in in different circles. So I, I was pretty uh, fulfilled at school. I loved it. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So you're a couple of years ahead of me, but I certainly remember the folk scene and the folk scene was so big. There was even a TV show, Nanny, And then all yeah. of a sudden we could really put it at uh, Dylan going electric, but it was also before that the Beatles. Were you a fan of the British invasion? What did you feel about Dylan going electric? You know, absolutely for me, the, um, the folk music. I read in the paper in the New York Times and stuff about Dylan being booed at Newport and all that. And, you know, it, it, to me, it was distressing because I was so political and I wanted him to be our, you know, as he rejects, as he said, he did not want to be that person in the culture. But there were plenty other people picking it up. I mean, I loved the staple singers. I loved, you know, the the political songs that were coming out more and more on the radio, not Eve of Destruction, but, you know, there were the Buffalo Springfield. In the middle 60s, there was a lot of the social movements of the 70s were being reflected on the radio and the songs that people were covering. And um, I I loved Motown. I always loved R&B, always loved Fats Domino and Chuck Berry. So as there is in my life now, there's a parallel track of, 
there's as much of me that loves the Rolling Stones and old blues and Chicago blues as there is folk music. So the two just live in me, and I love I love all of it. I loved I loved it as a teenager too. But back then, you know, I remember at WABC on Saturday nights, they'd have, you know, the war between the Beatles and the Stones. I know. And most most <laughs> of us liked both, but we had a preference. Well, you know, you liked the Stones, you liked the Beatles and the other uh, British invasion bands, Hermits, Hermits, Jerry and the Pacemakers, or that was not, not for you. I love the Beatles. I lo- had a big crush on John Lennon. I Love Me Do is still a great funky record, and I should have known better. I mean, they made they did a great version of Twist and Shout, but I mean, Isley's is the king. But the Stones definitely got my attention because I was always, always loving R- the R&B side of pop. You know, I loved Ray Charles. I loved all the R&B records, whether it was, you know, oh, way before Aretha Franklin's Lady Soul and Otis Redding, there was all of those R&B Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and the Four Tops and the Temptations. And I just love the R&B covers of the Beatles and the Stones. But I remember my folks looking at, I went nuts for the Beatles. And then I found the Stones and my parents, my mom looked at the cover of the Stones and she said she was trying to push the Beatles back on me. because <laughs> she, <laughs> she could tell I was going down a dark alley with, I was just. And did you guys. go to. Did you go to shows at that era? Did you go to see the Stones? I did. I went to see the Stones at Long Beach Arena, and I stood on the fence when their limo went by from the backstage area and tried to hurl myself, you know, through the fence, but just screaming and yelling and screaming and yelling. So I I completely was nuts for the Stones. And they went on Shindig and brought Howlin' Wolf, which did not was not lost on me. And I was a very big Tina, Ike and Tina Turner fan as well in L.A., so, you know, there was, I, I loved Les McCann and Mose Allison, too. I used to listen to the jazz station, and I just loved the funky end of pop and jazz and soul music. Were there any advantages in being John Raitt's daughter, I mean, in be able to get good tickets and stuff like that? Not that I found, no. <laughs> but I did get to see, you know, hang backstage with him and watch him for my whole childhood do the most incredible performances eight shows a week night after night i mean he was his work ethic was astonishing but it looked to us kids like he was just getting paid to play you know what i mean he had his whole day off to wash the car and play golf and hang out with us and then he would drive in half hour into new york and play pajama game and come back at night so it it was you know we didn't get to see him in the summertime but because he was doing summer stock, but you know, it was worth it. He was just, he, he didn't have a real job. He didn't look like a normal dad. You know, it was just like a matinee idol for a dad. They got to sing and do what he loved and get paid for it. So, you know, it was, um, the benefit of that was pride, great pride. And I got to, well, one of the side things I'll say is Hugh Beaumont, Mr. Wow. Cleaver, he used to come to our house. Those guys were really good friends of ours. So I had a lot of bragging rights saying, yeah. And he Whoa. was just, he was like that at the table. He was like, you know, we knew him our whole life. He was just, we just couldn't believe it. So I would pinch myself that I was going to school. I went steady for a minute with Jerry Lewis's second son, Ronnie. And then, there, you know, Burt Lancaster's kids were in my class. So it was fun to be a show business kid in a show business town and Sammy Khan's daughter, Lori was one of my best friends. So that it was a lot of fun. And how old were you when your parents split up? 
I was already in college. I was 19. You know, I have a friend whose parents split up when he was 26, and you would think it didn't affect him at all. He seems to be more affected than people, even like my sister's kids, who were much younger when they got her. She got divorced. So, to what degree did the divorce affect you? It was rough to watch my mother in so much pain. You know, I learned a lesson about how many marriages stay together until the kids are grown or menopause or, you know, later I was able to look back through a lens of, well, they probably weren't getting along and it wasn't anybody's particular fault and it wasn't any of my business. So they chose not to share it with us. But it was rough for my mom because my dad found someone else. And and being in the public eye, he was photographed with her a lot. And it was embarrassing because my mom was kind of his quasi-manager and his music director for all those years. So she got a raw deal, I thought. So that part was painful. And then, like all divorced kids, you know, one Christmas is with your mom and the next Christmas is with your dad. And there's a little competition going on between who's more fun to hang out with, you know, and that's the way it is with, you know, parents. You know, when my dad was traveling all the time, he'd come home and bring us presents and he never had to discipline us. So my mom got the the short end of the stick. She had to be the mom and the dad. As years went on, how did they get along? Um, Because they didn't have to, you know, send us back and forth as dual custody. We were already grown. They were... I wouldn't say friendly, but when the, when we all started to get married, they were civil and nice to each other. My mom played piano for my dad to sing at my older brother's wedding, and that was nice. But I would say it wasn't chilly. But when I started, it, when I won Grammys in one year, I decided to break see if they would come together as my guests, and they they had a nice time together. It was sweet. And how many kids were in the family? Two brothers. I'm in the middle. It's funny, you know, the older you get, I'm into birth order, and I see the difference, you know, between my older sister and the younger sister. You know, in the middle, and some of my older, it was so much craziness going on, I was sort of in my own space. And are, you the, are you in the middle or the baby? I'm in the middle. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I think being the woman too, I'm the only girl, I'm, I'm like the peacemaker that's trying to... You know, I don't know. I think there's just a certain... I haven't read a lot of... I, there's a lot of literature about what the middle kid is like and what who, what right. roles you play. But I think it's complicated when the divorce happens. And, you know, if you if you know, we stop knowing each other as kids at 13, 15, and 17. We weren't together for the, la- the rest of our teen years. So, But in our adulthood, we got to be closer friends. And to what degree did they affect you? Were you more of a tomboy, you know, playing sports, et cetera? Absolutely. Absolutely tomboy. My heroes were, um, I I loved Gidget because she was a girl in a guy's world and she was tough and they accepted her and you know, my older brother, I had, I adored my older brother and I had crushes on most of his friends and they were, they would put up with me but then when i started to turn into a, a, a girl you know few best a little bit they were making fun of me but oh, it was brutal and then you know i wish they would hang out with me some more but you know that's what happens with your older siblings they just they dump you at, at 13 <laughs> now, let's so go back. i i was a tomboy and i never wanted to be a girly girl i always 
saw that women were, I just thought they had to bend themselves into shapes that didn't seem too natural. So I kind of looked up at Am to Amanda Blake because she had red hair, but also because she owned the saloon on Gunsmoke. She loved the sheriff, but she didn't have to marry him. That was very important message to me. Gidget, Amanda Blake on Gunsmoke. And, uh, you know, later Shirley MacLaine and Joe, you know, I thought she had a great life. I never had the m wife and mother calling. And have you sustained the same person or as you've gotten older, or is any of that girly girl stuff appealing? I'm more comfortable with my womanhood and, you know, and my, when the feminist movement happened, it was really, I was right along in there in college. I mean, we all demanded, you know, hey, we'd like to get off too. You know, maybe you could think about that or how about doing a dish? You know, there was a lot of that even in our counterculture political movements in the in college and in the food co-op when I first moved off campus. You know, there was a lot of women asking for sexual parity and, and, and housework parity, you know. And uh, and it was just part of my generation. I can't even I can't even imagine the Phyllis Shafley point of view, where you're just there to subserve, to be of service to your man. You know, couldn't relate. So, I'm I I'm a more mature version of myself, but I still have the 14 year old rebel in me. And alcohol. I mean, when I went to college in Vermont, it was the first state that gave you all rights at age 18. So oh. we'd been we'd been smoking dope, but then it was cool to drink, and I drank plenty. Was there any? You know, you have had a lot of alcohol. Was any of it? I'm keeping up with the guys. Oh, in my case, it was uh, you couldn't drink in Massachusetts till 21. My parents didn't really drink, and. I wasn't raised around it, but I immediately, when I met Dick Waterman and he was introducing me to Sun House and Buddy Guy and John, hanging with those blues guys, and then the Buddy and Junior opened for the Stones, and I went along for a month on that European tour when I was 20, and party in Central, man. I mean, I was diving in for the first time to the professional <laughs> drinkers, many of whom, the older blues guys, were actually, you know, borderline alcoholics, so it was... Um, I, I wanted to beat my voice down to sound older, and I want, I picked up cigarettes and carried a flask of Jim Beam around and tried to talk tough. I mean, it seems pathetic to me when I hear <laughs> radio shows where I'm going, yeah, man, you know, like I'm trying to, it was embarrassing. But, you know, by the time I was about 28, I developed into a, a sound of my voice and a persona that was more authentic. I wasn't putting on the blues mama thing. And you realized that at 28. Yeah. Well, I, I knew that I was pouring it on a little bit, even in my 20s. But there's nothing more humiliating and humbling than listening to yourself high back from a radio station interview. That, you know, like someone goes, man, you guys were out of it. And, you know, that that sobers you up pretty good. So, you know, I, I d got into drinking and the lifestyle through rock and roll and blues. It was kind of a, a badge of honor, you know. I mean, who would want to stay up? It, when you're staying up late, you don't even get off work until midnight or one o'clock. And that's when you unwind. So you're not you're not making smoothies at one o'clock in the morning. So, you know, I think it was a fun lifestyle until about my mid-30s when I got puffy and couldn't always remember what I was saying and you know it just seemed sloppy and I wasn't as healthy and I I, I 
frankly, it was just the fact that Prince wanted to make a video and I went, man, I got to lose some weight because if we make a sexy video together and I look like this, it's not going to work. So I will have him, his, his inspiration being a little big pen thin to helping me, you know, why I quit drinking just to lose weight, but I really liked it. So I stuck with it. Well, I had a similar thing. I didn't quit to lose weight, but it was such a transition that once I was over, you know, I didn't want to go back, which was not my anticipation when I stopped. Yeah, I didn't expect to like it. I thought it was just temporary, you know. And then I was, but but I went to a musician's meeting in L.A. with a bunch of friends of mine that I used to party with that have had gotten sober, and they were clearly not turning into moonies and and you know they were they were having a hell of a lot more fun than most of the people that were locked jaw at a party in the middle of the night just chain smoking, <laughs> saying stuff that was bullshit, you know. And uh, they kind of guided me into it. And I, it seemed to be a, when I learned a little bit more about an addictive behavior, you know, addictive personality, I went, oh, ding, 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 this is me. And how about drugs as opposed to alcohol? Um, they kind of went together, you know, as of about 72, my second album, cocaine and alcohol were just part of the deal. I was never a pothead, but. It was certainly around, but I I never got into pills. But it was more like just the perfect combination of blow and drinking. And at this point, you're 100% clean? Yeah. 35 years. Wow. More and for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people who say they're, it's like during COVID. People said, oh, I'm really strict. Well, I went to this person's house. They had a party. People say, oh, yeah, I'm clean. Yeah, I smoke. I smoke marijuana. I have a drink occasionally, but I'm clean. So it's a different thing. Yeah, well, Drew, the, the issues for me were, were alcohol and cocaine would probably be, it would be very, it, I would be slipping within six months. I'd probably be back making excuses for drinking too much. I, you know, it's not worth it. I know what I know what that can lead to. So that those were the things that I needed to stop, and I've been grateful you know, one day at a time. How'd you hook up with Prince and supposedly there was going to be a whole project that ultimately never saw the light of day? Yeah, I didn't want to make a whole album with him. I just wanted to do some collaboration, but only if we met in the middle. You know, I didn't want to like make a Prince record or have, and he certainly wasn't going to make one of my records. So we agreed. I mean, he he reached out when I got dropped from Warner's and said he thought that I got treated badly. And he said, you know, I have Paisley Park. Why don't you come on over here and we'll... We'll show them, you, you know, you'll get you a better deal. We'll make a better treatment on my label. I have a lot more respect for women musicians. And that not that the gender had anything to do with why the big scythe came through and, and dropped T-Bone Burnett and Arlo Guthrie and Van Morrison and me on the same day on Pearl whoa, Harbor, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pearl well, Harbor how Day. All, how are you that, all there on the same day? Uh, that asked the legal department at Warner's. They just, the big money guys that took over Warner Brothers, Warner, it was WIA, remember Warner Electric Atlantic? Right. They just, the bean counters said, these guys are not making enough. We re signed them so they wouldn't go to another label, but they're not bringing in any more money than to pay back this big signing fee that we gave them. It's better to just cut our losses and dump them. So, and how did how did you feel about that? Oh, with a national tour opening for Stevie Ray Vaughan pulled out from under me and putting my entire band and crew out of work after working on an album and having it ready to come out, you know, with the artwork. I mean, I pay for my albums, so, you know, I was pissed. 
I was very pissed. So I had to, I went back on the road just as a duo because I couldn't afford to take the band. But in the summertime, I could go out with the band. I was still had built my following or I could either open for Jimmy Buffett at a big giant place or, you know, tour pretty well, you know, three, 4,000 people. I could still draw in the summertime. But you, without a new album and the advertising that it brings, it was very difficult to sustain the level that I had built up to. So I knew I would get another deal. It was just a matter of which label, you know, I did I want to do rounder records? Did I want to think about another major? And I just, I just, uh, luckily I can play the guitar and tour and make a, make good living just as a duo as well. Okay. Before we drop it. So you ended up going to Paisley park. What was the experience? Oh Yeah. We met, we met in LA. We, you know, had a blast. We have a lot of music that we love. He, he loved my first records, you know, and I'm, I was, we were mutual fans. And um, I was supposed to go and do some preliminary writing with him and come up with some stuff that was 50 50. And I, inj- I had a ski accident and pulled a ligament off my thumb. So I had to postpone that. So he went in the studio and cut some songs in his key with his lyrics. Without so by the time I finally got to Minneapolis, they weren't in my key and they weren't lyrics that I wanted to sing. So you know, I said we're going to have to get together again and start over and and work on some stuff that says the things that I'd like to say. So and it was an aborted project because he exp- he extended his European tour after I canceled my summer tour to work with him, and he didn't even call me to say he did it. So thanks a lot, bud. <sighs> So was your ski accident? Were you a big skier, or was this? You no, know, it was out like the day? second lesson I ever had. And the the woman who was taking me up the bunny slope was uh, starstruck, and she forgot to give me the poles that break away. So this lady came by and clipped me, and I started going down the mountain like a cartoon, ru- going to run into a tree. So I made myself fall, and I yanked the th- the finger picking bass note thumb. But it ended up being what got me into eight because while I was home, I decided to quit drinking in a cast. I couldn't tour. So it was a fortuitous, I like to say I was hitchhiking to a better life. <laughs> yeah, with your thumb, ever ski again? We were a water ski family, so a lot of water skiing, but I have not snow skied. I, I would do it again, but I just, I think I would be much more cautious about, you know, having a breakaway poles and staying on the slopes that were appropriate for me. And to what degree are you active exercising sports today? I'm very into a regular yoga practice, especially because I do it on FaceTime with a girlfriend for 15 years, three or four days a week. And we can change the time. We can change, we can change the music. We can keep talking during it. We can, take breaks we can reschedule at the last minute and here's my favorite word free (laughs) so so i've done it but we do a combination of you know strength work and sit-ups and and yoga it's a it's a practice that i really love and i've only been able to do it because of the buddy system i highly recommend it because you know you can say well i don't feel like it she goes okay let's do it at four o'clock and then i always do it and i always feel better so for 15 years, I've done it every other day, pretty much. And I do a lot of hiking. And I try to get outside at least a couple hours a day. And hiking in your vicinity or traveling to go hiking? 
Well, when we're, we've been on the road since April, and it's mostly staying downtown, so it's flat. So that's not as much fun. I used to take my bike along, but I haven't been doing that as much lately. But where I live in Northern California, I moved to Marin County so I could be close to hiking trails. And, you know, when I got sober, L.A. didn't seem as much fun to me because I was kind of, I used to be up at night. And when you're up in the daytime, L.A. is like smoggy and a lot of traffic. And I grew up there, so I wanted to move someplace that had redwoods and the ocean and mountains. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You go out with five other people at this point in time. Do you ever say, well, this is costing me money? Well, it always costs money to take anybody out, but that's what makes it fun. I mean, you're doing it to make your music sound the way you want it to sound and the camaraderie of being on the road with the band and crew is one of the reasons I like being on the road for 50 years now. You know, if I wasn't on the tour bus and didn't get to hang with my peeps, I would have hang, hanged it up a long time ago. So you're the opposite of many people who, especially in the era of uh, streaming, they go on the road, they don't want to. You look forward to it. Yeah, I make new records so I can go on the road. I love and the tra- I love the traveling life. My dad loved it. I love it. He toured till he was 85. And I have a friend who worked 
uh, in the old uh, film era with Led Zeppelin. He says, I've been around the world. I've seen nothing. Uh, oh. when, you, when you travel these places, do you take advantage of the cultural uh, stuff there? Yeah, well, we started when I, um, right around the time when Nick of Time came out, we started to drive at night on the bus so that we could have the daytime, so I could get some exercise and get out and sightsee and see my friends. I mean, with COVID, I'm still getting outside and still doing yoga, but I I see friends with a mask. We test first and we distance, you know, so I'm, we're, we've been in a COVID bubble since January. But yeah, I take advantage of it on nights off. I try to go to great you know i have friends all over the place that i've kept in touch with high school and college and activist friends and former band members and you know so uh it's really fun to wake up in a new city and try to but and after all these years of being in pittsburgh many times i have seen all the sites but it doesn't mean that it's any more less fun to ride bikes along the river and where are some of the places that really caught you off guard that were really very interesting to you well, you know, the obvious ones that I love are Vancouver, Seattle, and New Orleans, for example. Austin has an incredible music scene. I always try to come in a couple of days early so I can hang out. Um, I love every section of this country. I mean, I, I'm, I really, there's surprising things about southern New Jersey that is more rural and beautiful. You know, when I used to play colleges in the 70s, I was surprised to find out there was something between Trenton and New York City, which that industrial pollution kind of stuff didn't thrill me. But I'm, there's little outlying areas to most of the cities. I mean, even on tour and outside of Rome, 45 minutes, if you have a day off, you can go all through all kinds of little villages and towns and I'd have to say that the, the fun part of the 70s was driving to all those colleges and seeing all those smaller roads than the ones we see now. And how about the rest of the world outside the States, outside North America? I have never been to South America or Central America or places like Tahiti or Bali. I would love to go to Thailand. I've been to Japan, but it's so expensive now and I'm not a big star over there. So we probably can't go in the rest of my life. I probably won't ever get to go there. Again, the UK is my favorite place to tour, and Holland has always been incredibly open for people like Ry Cooter and Randy Newman and Little Feet and myself. Back in the 70s when America really didn't know who we were, there, for some reason, there's a music scene there that really appreciated that range of, you know, American artists where that, you know, nexus of R&B and honky-tonk and you know, they weren't the, the people over in Europe don't care so much about putting you in a box as America used to. But now with the, the Americana format, we've got a comfortable home. So I, I love Scotland and Ireland and I love New Zealand and Australia. I will say I've been to South America a couple of times and the best place I've ever been was Bogota. Everybody, wow. everybody I hung with there had a family member who'd been killed. Oh, my and, gosh. And, with, and they mean like gang violence? or Yes. Oh, yes. gosh. It was just de rigueur. And there were certain places you couldn't go. I was also there with, you know, the manager, of the st original manager of the Stones lives there, Andrew Lou Goldham. So it was Oh, fasc my gosh. It's fascinating to be with him because, you know, there are certain places they tell you not to go be with him. And he knows they can see you being an American right off. And he knows how to push him away. It was just so. Why, so did, he, why did he settle there? I just saw him on the um, Burt Burns movie, which was so great. 
they interviewed him for that. Well, you know, he's very much alive. He married a woman from Bogota. Oh, okay. It like, wasn't like a Nazi and they were going to find out. <laughs> yeah. He also has a place in Vancouver at this particular point, where so he goes back and forth. But he can tell you the real story on Stone stuff, just utterly fascinating. Oh, my gosh. Have you seen that new series that they did? You're talking about the new documentaries? Yeah, the new series on the Stones. I've only seen the um, Charlie one, and I saw part of the Ronnie one when I got sleepy on the bus, so I got to pick it up again. You know, I have not seen them yet, although everybody says it's great. No, when it gets to, to television, you know, I just watched the Sinead O'Connor documentary, and then I got started in the Credence one, and they're done so heavily, but they, they draw you right in. Did yeah. you remember the era? You know the Lee the I thought Lee Morgan one. I know his family didn't love it, but the Oscar Peterson and Lee Morgan ones are fantastic. I mean, there's so many. I love my favorite one I've ever seen that I was so surprising was the quiet one about Bill Wyman with all those home. Oh, that was great! Stones. Fantastic. And what about his collection of stuff in his building? What a guy! I love him. Do you watch streaming television other than I musical? I do. Album? I watch it because we're on the road, so we have nights off, and after the show, we can pair our computer or our phone with the TV and the bus. So as we're going down the road, with COVID, there's no after-show meet and greets, so I get to see all kinds of cool stuff. So what do you recommend? Oh, I loved... Um, well, there's ones that I just, you know, things like Dead to Me, I really liked. I loved Ray Donovan. I was surprising because it's pretty violent, but I really loved it. I loved Ted Lasso. I don't have Apple TV, but my friend did, and I it made me so happy. I loved the morning show that's also on Apple TV. And then tons of things from Britain, you know. I'm not a big crime murder mystery one, but the Grantchester guy, the guy who started in the original Grantchester was very cute. So I used to, I, I admit that I watched it because he was so handsome. Have you seen Happy Valley? No, but that guy's in it. Right. That's my... He's a bad guy. I saw, I watched a little bit of it, but it was upsetting to me. <laughs> that used to be my, my number one recommendation, although I think it's not on Netflix anymore. It's on another service. Have you watched Borgen? No, but I heard that's really good. I heard that's really good. Sometimes I'm in the mood for something dark, but a lot of times I just want escapist Brit, anything British and from not not my time zone. I mean, time period. Right. Uh, because d during the election and George Floyd and the, I was just so, I, so many of our friends passed away between cancer and a couple of suicides and drug overdoses, but COVID too. It was just one after the other every I was just devastated. So I watched a lot of escapist and, you know, um, travel and chef, chef's table kind of things and travel and nature films and a lot of stuff about dogs, soothing things. My girlfriend is hooked on the cooking shows. She doesn't cook, but she's hooked on the shows. I don't cook that much either, but I like them too. If I have a half hour, they make me feel good. How about the house redecorating and buying and selling into those two NHG? I have not seen those, and I don't do the reality TV too much. You know, the, I, I have not watched the house, you know, the kind of gossipy things. Right. Just, yeah. What about reading? I love to read. I'm reading both Jan Winner and Barbara Dane's excellent 
biographies, autobiographies right now. I'm going back and forth between the two. I love uh, The Night Watchman, Louise Erdick. I, my favorite book I've found in my entire life is called This is Happiness by Niall Williams from Ireland. I'm, I cannot recommend it more highly. So, I mean, I admit that COVID was, it had gave me other choices, but I also read The New Yorker and I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and New Yorker fiction and the, you know, I do a lot of politics through my podcasts. Okay. Let's go back to the Jan Wenner book. I read the one that he axed uh, that was supposed to be a autobiography and then he didn't like it. It was called Sticky Fingers or something. This one I have, it gets such a bad rap though that he's constantly dropping names. What's your experience in reading it? I was telling Jackson last night when we were talking about it and I, you know, the fact is the guy, that is his life. He was friends with John Kennedy. You know, like, I'm, it's okay. You know, he gets, he gets to do it. He was really important in our culture and he really was friends with all these people and it's fascinating to read. So he's a good writer and I'm, you know, I'm glad that he wrote it and I don't feel like he's dropping names, but I'm also famous myself. So I don't know what it's like to be a civilian and read that. And you're not really a civilian. You're in the biz. Well, I guess you, the other thing is, you know, Clive Davis, the first book in the 70s was phenomenal. The second one, I was about three quarters through, and he was so busy burnishing his image. Oh, yeah. That, you know. I didn't get that feeling from Jan, but I mean, I thought it was kind of vulnerable and open, and I appreciated it. But I'd never read Hitman. Was that great? Walter Yetnikoff? Hitman? Yetnikoff wrote a book that was okay but Hitman the book phenomenal yeah, that's although, what I hear that's the, what I and hear. I would all it's the best book about the you know it's an interesting thing because you know the code of the road you reveal certain stuff and you're out forever so this yeah. guy Frederick Danny wrote one book that's it no one's ever going to talk to him again <laughs> but, I'm but, sorry but I heard it was absolutely accurate you know? It absolutely was. I mean, one of the strange things today is you remember when you were making those records for Warner Brothers, music was everything. And the people who ran the labels were God. I usually related to the movie studios. You lived in LA, you knew who ran the movie studios. Now nobody knows, nobody cares. Yeah. It's a completely different Well, I had like seven presidents at the time I was at Capitol. Like, you know what I mean? I, I made relationships with all their their staff and then their staff had relations with radio and on the road. And then, and then by the time the record came out, he'd been fired and a whole new team came in that I had no relationship with. So, you know, it was, I, that's why I went independent. I got my own, I started my own label. I just got tired of the not having phone calls answered, you know? Could you have stayed at the major label? No, I planned 10 years in advance of, starting Red Wing that I was going to go independent. I saw my I saw two or three friends including John Prine who had a great was the right. first person to do it. Um I just, you know, if you have a staff that is capable and super smart and willing to do the work, it was great to go independent. I, sta I stockpiled my touring money and we um, I haven't looked back. Why is it called Red Wing? Oh, cuz I have like a red shock of hair. That goes like that. It's just like a wing of hair. It's not bangs. And I just sort of, I don't know. I just thought it was cool. And the logo has a little white streak like my streak. And uh, how many people are work for Red Wing? 
Oh, it's just same my same office. It's the Kathy Kane's my manager. Annie Heller Gutwillig is my um, uh, backup, like social media, social activism, music, you know, all kinds of, everybody's wearing multiple hats. So I've got three main women that are in the office and then we have PR and distribution and promo and people that advise us, you know, label kind of people that advise us. And then we have a whole digital arm that we outsource. So everything's kind of outsourced from our basic team of three women and me. You Just to go back, you were talking, you listen to political podcasts. Which ones do you listen to? I listen to Ezra Klein and The Daily and, uh, you know, I pick and choose different things that I link on. You know, if I'm reading the LA Times or the New York Times or The Guardian, you know, uh, I I just try to surf all the different stories and get different points of view. I don't, I should read more from the other side's point of view, but I I just can't do it. Do you, do you, do you make yourself read? I mean, if there was a George Will that I admired, I might read that point of view a little bit. I mean, there's some people at the at the Times that are more conservative than me, but I just can't. I can't study what they're saying. It just makes me gag. Well, you know, when you're in high school, information flows very quickly, and we're not in high school anymore. And even though everybody in our generation has an iPhone and says how digitally savvy they are, they really are not. You know, they're not on TikTok. So the question is, how does one become isolated, not become isolated? In the 70s, when someone didn't know what was going on, you'd roll your eyes. Now, you know, a lot of people are out of the loop. So to tell you the truth, I get three physical newspapers every day that I read from cover to cover because they tune me in. And then I get the Washington Post digitally. So as far as the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial and opinion page, everybody knows those people are whacked. Even the people I know who are writing for the Wall Street Journal, Brett Stevens, I you know who's the right wing guy at the New York Times. I don't always agree with him. I think you know you're going to get me on a rant. The yep. New York Times sets the agenda for America, if not the world, and the right, as they tend to do, has demonized the Times. To the point that it's become a pejorative. If you mention it's the time, oh no, that's that's the biased New York Times. But the right gets all their news from the New York Times. If you wow. turn, you know, if you turn on Fox, they're quoting the New York Times. They they will disagree with it, but they don't have their own independent news gathering service. Wow! So interesting. It's re- you know, it's really fascinating. So. When it comes to the other thing, you know, in Sirius in the car, you can listen to all the news stations. And I used to listen to Fox on a regular basis just to find out what was going on. But after the shenanigans in the wake of the 2020 election, very rarely. I yeah, do, me too. And I do go to the webpage just to see primarily their spin, whether they, I mean, I, I was yeah, I know it's important as a social a student of social how people are getting their information and social psychology and social you know it's important to understand what's getting play you know in the culture you know and wow Well the other thing is things are big news on the left they don't even forget the spin 
they appear way, way, way down on the Fox site, if at all. I mean, I, lo- I love Amy Goodman. I listen to a lot of public radio. I listen to BBC. I listen to the PBS NewsHour and BBC World News every day. And, you know, I try to poke around, and then there's days when I just want to be off in the woods and listen to an audio book. I don't want to be dipping into politics because I get, as an activist, I'm hit up for, as I move through the country, I'm, I have choices for who to have table at my concerts and which, uh, which candidates I might want to send money to. So I have to stay on top of which nuclear plant is almost closed and which one is having a toxic leak in this organization is, you know, they need assistance and I, and I am the person to tithe my tour proceeds you know we tie the whole bunch of my whatever profits i make in my life to supporting the groups like over 100 groups that that i am proud to support but i have to make sure that they're still viable so there's enough homework involved with that where i just can't i can't read the washington post and the la i i mean i poke through the la times and new york times because they're my they're my peeps, I feel like. I mean, I should read the San Francisco Chronicle, but it's just I don't have enough hours in the day to follow everything. Well, you know, on Apple News Plus, you pay a dollar a month. And I only, my main motivation was New York Magazine was going to $100 a year. I go, 20 40 but $100 a year, there are issues with almost nothing in it. So I can yeah. read that. But it also has the San Francisco Chronicle, the Sacramento Oh, Bee. good. Thank you for telling me. Because, you know, San Jose Mercury News is a great paper, too. There's a lot of really good papers still. Most of those are all, if you pay the dollar, they're in Apple News. If you get confused, just have somebody email me. It's pretty simple. But- okay, this is, the, this is, I am now, and when I hang up with you, I'm going to get Apple everything. Because my keyboard player has just told me how much stuff's available on Apple TV+. Plus. And, you know, I just go, nah, I can't take one more, one, one more, I'm full. But I'm going to cancel something and put in Apple TV. Okay. I got Apple TV for buying products. I got Apple TV from the outset, onset, until May. Then I heard about a show and I paid the $5. I didn't like the show. I mean, listen, Apple has so much of my money, I'm not complaining about that. But I canceled as a protest. Give me a number. Give me. I'll take all the services. Give me a number. But I feel like I'm being pecked to death by ducks. I mean, <laughs> you know. I hear you. I know what you mean. How about the new chargers? I mean, come on. Do you think like it could get? I heard they're going to. Oh, anyway, we're going to sidetrack here. I don't want to. No, no. Sidetrack all you want. So talk about the but, chargers. You know, I mean, it took me a long time even to get a CD player. You know, I was a Luddite. Before I went to area codes, I kept Crestview 61593. You know, I kept the, <laughs> for a long ass time. But, you know. Forest 368, that was our number. 0528. Yep. And you remember watching New York TV, which was the TV where I grew up in Connecticut. Dial Murray Hill, you know. It was just Oh, so yeah, funny. yeah. <laughs> Crazy Eddie. And you guys had Zachary, didn't you? Oh, of course. I remember yeah. when Zachary, you know, was the afternoon kids show. And then oh, when all great. of a sudden he turned up on what WNEW, you just couldn't believe it that it was yeah. the same guy. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. 
That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You have never given up the faith. You have always supported causes. If you pull the lens back, one can argue quite strongly that the Vietnam War was ended by protest by the youth. And certainly all the musicians involved in Muse got the public to really have a bad feeling about nuclear power. To what degree... Do you, are you disillusioned or feel that the activist effort still makes a difference? You know, there's a qualitative difference with Fox News and what's happened in this country's delivery of information and the, the center of investigative reporting and trusting in the center that there is a middle way with the CBS News and ABC News and Nightly News on NBC David Susskind, Charlie Rose, there used to be some discourse, whether it was Crossfire or, you know, uh, CNN. I mean, there was there was a center that you could kind of count on that was going to be sane. And since that has split to where people are delusional and 40% of the people in this country believe, or the Republicans anyway, that the election was stolen, I don't know how to say, I, I don't know how to address that except to keep pushing for fair elections and free press and get as much of a cultural icons to remain neutral and maybe somehow get some sort of 
coming together to hear both sides. I wish there was a way to get that debate where the other side would listen to us and I would want to listen to the other side. So I don't, I don't really know how to dismantle what's going on with democracy being threatened the way it is. It's, it's just like, it's nothing that I would have foreseen. I mean, racism, I understand that it's the, the lid is blown off on that. The Me Too movement, you know, the have and the have nots getting worse gentrification nobody can afford you know all of the policies international but what's the lurch to the right and the rise of fascism in terms of information and people belief systems i just wasn't expecting did did you see that coming not whatsoever the soviet union fell obama won it was supposed to be democrats forever i can understand why it switched but I did not see it forthcoming whatsoever. I mean, I got we got the Tea Party. I saw that, the moral majority, but that's, you know, that's just fighting. That means you get in there and you have debates and but what's going on now with the people just all of those QAnon people getting elected, I it's it's not a country I recognize. I don't know how to dismantle it. So you have a lot of tour dates coming up in the South, which tends yeah. re- tends red. Yep. Are you are you conscious of saying or not saying political things? We're traveling. I travel with the Ukrainian flag resting against the drum riser, and I make a comment about how we need to support them for a long time, refugees, and then refugees all over. But I very much just encourage people to vote and have local groups that are working on issues, sometimes environmental, sometimes um you know, specific to legislation that's on the docket. You know, I'll have people tabling, but I don't I don't push it on people from the stage. I think they're there to hear a concert. So uh, it's not a benefit rally, but I just saw Jackson play a month ago at the same place. I just played the Berkeley Greek Theater. And, you know, his songs are fantastically topical and timeless at the same time. And I don't feel, I feel like it's, I can pretty much assume that my audience, even in the South, a lot of them will be in the same ballpark politically as I am. But I just think it's not the place for me to say stuff. I don't want to be a, a, I I don't want to open up that discourse in social media. I don't, I don't flare. I don't prick in my posts and stuff. I don't prick people to come in and, and attack me. I just can't, I can't stomach it. I just want to keep my organization working and keep my, band and crew and my causes supported and encourage people to get along and take care of themselves and just leave whether they're masked or not out of it you know i just i can't i can't i can only pick certain fights but i have definitely never been one to to proselytize on stage okay going back to the war the youth uh really opened people's eyes to what was going on in Vietnam, but it was really pushed by the tribal drum, which was the music. Yep. Do you and the rallies and the marches and all that. So, you know, I've been part of a bunch of marches and rallies and things. So anyway, I didn't let you ask your question. Well, you know, uh, you, but you inspired me to a certain degree. Rallies don't work anymore. The world lives online. The reason I'm saying this is not in response to you. I wrote this. If we look at what happened during the uh, Trump term, nothing that was other than uh, the Floyd protests, which were worldwide. And what if you talk to black people during that, they say it's just going to return to what it was, which to a great degree it has. But I think these battles are fought online. 
And I think young Democrats or left-leaning people are completely disillusioned because other than AOC, who's talking to them? It's these old wimpy people. (laughs) And then you have a lot of people who don't understand the modern paradigm. I mean, this is sort of, there's a couple of questions here, but you certainly are aware of the old routine. You make an album, the record company pushes it, they push it to radio, there's publicity everywhere. Pretty much everybody's interested knows that you have a new project. They may or may not like it, may or may not buy a ticket. Today, it's like a tree falls in a forest. I don't care who you are. Beyonce came out with a new album. The press was everywhere. Within three days, a lot of the tracks fell off the Spotify chart, which is where the most consumption is. So how do you cope? You're the same. You know, it's like that Joe Walsh song. Everybody's, you know, you're still the same. Everybody's changed. But can you just say I'm in my own bubble and doing these things? A lot of your contemporaries don't make new music at all. Well, I mean, I, I've done over 50 interviews for this album, and I'm um, a lot of TV. Uh, we managed to stay number 10, uh, me number one for 10 weeks on the Americana chart, the album, and the single was even longer at number one on the Americana chart. So, I, I mean, I have had a response that I haven't had in years to this record, and part of it is because I just worked my ass off you know, promoting it. And also because, you know, people, luckily it got some good reviews and some good attention, but do I expect the sales? I don't, I mean, I don't think you make, I only make my living on the road really. And not everybody can do that. I'm established and I know how rare it is to be able to get away with what I get away with in terms of being able to financially support two trucks and two buses and sound and lights. And, you know, it's, it's out of the realm of most of my friends who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. They can't even tour. I mean, forget COVID. A lot of the clubs are closed. Who's? I mean, where are they going to tour? You know, do do people that are 65 go out anymore? No. I'm in complete agreement with you. On the new album, you wrote or co-wrote four songs. You know, one of the my favorite songs yours ever. You wrote "Nothing Seems to Matter." From, oh, give it, from Give It Up. Thank you. And I was unhappy that you did not continue to write as much, but now in the recent years, you've written more. How does that come about? What, you know, in terms of you writing personally? In the 70s, I just, I made six albums in seven years and was on the road the whole time. So I just didn't have the privacy or the ability to write, you know, that was literally on the road the whole time. Um Nick of Time, waiting to do Nick of Time, I had a little bit more time between 86 and when I made the record a couple years later, and uh, I wanted to write something about what it was like to be 39, and I wrote Nick of Time, and The Road's My Middle Name, and and then I had more, uh, the luxury of having more time off in between tours, and that you have to have time off to write songs, so... I don't have a great attachment to having my own songs have to be on the record, but if I really feel like I want to tell a story or say something or I have a musical groove that I need to put on the record, I will write a song on assignment. And that's kind of what happened with the two acoustic ballads were really entirely um inspired because i didn't want to write about my personal life i had already written on every aspect of my personal life and i wanted to write a story song inspired by john prine's angel from montgomery you know 
So okay. I love the idea. I love the idea of taking someone else's story and writing a song about it from the point of view of the person in it. I love short stories. But um, you do it as an assignment as opposed to... Uh, well, let's just say when I get off the road, finally, then I have time to write songs for a record and c compile songs for a record. But uh, on, the, on the road, I'm just too busy. I don't know how people do it, but there's people that keep writing all the time. That would not be me. <laughs> but I really appreciate nothing that you like Nothing Seems to Matter. It's literally, aside from the... There's one song on my first album my first ever song called Thank You, but that was my first real song, Nothing Seems to Matter, and, and I, I stopped doing it in the 80s, but my new guitar player really wants me to do it, so I'm, I might whip it out. If you're into short stories, I got one recommendation. Have you read uh, Curtis Sittenfeld's You Think It, I'll Say It? No. She's written a number of famous books. You see her in the New Yorker on a regular basis. When it comes to short stories, it is by far my favorite short story book. You know, a lot of short stories, when you go from story to story, it's jarring. Yeah. This book, and it's so real. So right. that's my I'm, I'm, right, right after this, I'm going to look it up. Curtis Sittenfeld, I mean, that's a woman. You think it, I'll say it. So you worked with all these different producers. You know, you work with less famous people. Then you work with Paul Rothschild, who came up in the folk era. But really, I knew Paul was more of a control guy doing it his way. Then you work with Don Was. Now you're doing it yourself. What'd you learn about all those producers in the process? Oh, I learned something from each one of them. You know, like the engineer, too, because it's the team of the, the how the record sounds and how they mic the musicians. So I learned as much from the musicians that we picked to play on the songs and the engineer and how he's micing the drums and how I pick the team that I want to work with is what who's been making records that I really like. Like Mitchell Froom and Chad Blake made Kiko and they made those Richard Thompson records that I love. And after the four with Ed and Don, I said, I think I want to go play in their sandbox for a while because I love what Chad Blake does. So I learned, you know, as a, I'm not a technical geek, but I love to learn about where people put mics and what kind of mics they use on which instruments. And my my philosophy is to get the right musicians in the room and that you already like the way their drum kit sounds and you already like this guy's guitars and his amps. And then just mic everything that, so that you get an accurate sound of those people that you chose to put in there. You don't fix it later. You know, get the right people and then turn the mic on, sing live, play live, and fix as little as possible. And that's my choice. You know, Paul Rothschild was a, the opposite. He did tons of comping, and it was a whole different style of recording. I, I, after those two records, I said, that's it. I'm going back to live recording. I mean, I want to just make live records, turn the damn tape on. And if, you know, maybe between two takes, you go between the third verse of the second take or maybe the solo from the first one. But I, I'm just not a studio person that does 15, 20 takes of things. So, you're one of the rare people who have a later album that I believe is just as good as one of the earlier albums. For a long time, Give It Up was my favorite, but Luck of the Draw is different, but just as good. Thank and you I used so much. And I have really appreciated all the wonderful things that you have said about those songs. I mean, Michael O'Keefe lo loves One Part Be My Lover, that you, well, you went off on that, and... 
Ed Cherney and I talked about how much we love what you wrote about Luck of the Draw, and Paul Brady is and I have been in Every time you showcase that record, we are all delighted. So thank you so much. That's how I found out about you as you wrote. Someone sent me your early piece about, I think it was one part, Be My Lover. Yeah, it was and still phenomenal. But, you know, Ed, great guy. To what degree did he influence you? Oh, God. I mean... I don't think I've ever had as much fun in the studio as those records were because of Ed. His personality, you know him. I mean, he was just a big old teddy bear. He was hilarious. He was funny. He was a genius. And Don was, the, the chemistry between the three of us was just epic. It was, we love each other so much. I just had lunch with Don the other day. And I, I, our love is so true and so deep. And our musical taste is so mutually respected. We We love each other's aesthetic so ed was just uh you know as professional as he was a good time i'm so sorry that he passed you know he was a terrible loss <sighs> terrible terrible but did you you talk about learning from engineers did you learn from ed oh yeah you know uh, the luck of the draw is that is the album that many sound companies tune their live you know speakers to when they're out in the house and they're they're getting sounds before the band comes up for sound check. Many, many people have said we use Luck of the Draw as the gold standard, you know. And, you know, I, I love engineering. I love to listen to what he's doing. And, and I love, I had a lot to do with how my, t my taste that makes the record as much as his capability because it's just a question. Some people like a lot of reverb. Some people like, you know, live sounding drums. Some people, it's really my taste. So I pick... I picked Ed, and Don didn't know Ed, but I loved Ed's work with Ry Cooter on Get Rhythm. And then I said, we got to meet this guy that did David Lindley's El Rayo X and Ry Cooter's Get Rhythm. And we had lunch with him, and that was it. The three of us were born. I didn't know that story. How did you meet Paul Brady? My bass player, Hutch Hutchinson, turned me on to his solo albums which I had only known his traditional stuff. And I think they even opened for me at Tufts University years ago when he was with the Johnsons. Or, um, but I was flipped out when I heard his first couple of solo albums and just became such a huge fan of his. He's one of the greatest that, you know, up there with Paul Simon, I think. And, you know, when you have an album that you love, your favorite changes. And one part, Be My Lover, was always my favorite. But now the song, Luck of the Draw, is my favorite. I loved what you wrote about that, too. We were so delighted because, you know, you make those you make those records real for people. That was 30 years ago, you know. It's hard to believe that that, that album, you know. I mean, there's my, my fans know those songs, but you gave it new life. And I think Luck of the Draw is, I, for all the reasons you illuminated, I think it's exactly that brilliant. And he's got a new autobiography that is waiting at, on my dining room table that they just shipped up. Wow. He hasn't reached out yet, but I'll put my radar on that. Yeah, he just, I think it just came, I don't even think it's out yet. Yeah, that's how, you know, they ship the book business. That's a slow, antiquated business. So how did you end up on Capital? Danny Goldberg and Ron Stone were working with me and my lawyer, Nat Weiss, were all working as a team and seeing what, you know, wh who, who felt like the right change. And Joe Smith moved over to Capitol and he signed me to Warner's in, in uh, 
71 and you know he and danny and nat and everybody sat down and they said well we're you know we don't think she's going to sell a lot you know we'll give her a really low budget and uh, i think i think it was one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars, and i had to make the record out of that no signing advance and i said sure again if i if i can have artistic control and you don't try to tell me what to record or what to look like or you know get in the studio and tell me how to sound and joe understood that this episode is brought to you by navy federal credit union at navy federal it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years and not just help them but do everything to make sure they not only grow but flourish that's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, needless to say, you know, it hadn't ended well with Warner Brothers. Your first album is this amazing success in a different era when if you have success, it maintains all those Grammys cause sales forever. What was it like for you being in the center of that maelstrom? Absolutely fantastic. I mean, even before the nominations, the record had sold a million copies, and I did like two hours of press a day, even on the road a lot, like three or four of the days a week. I just hammered, hammered, hammered. You know, the the new label was very excited to prove that they could do a better job with me, and the critics really liked the album. I got like a half page in the New York Times or the Newsweek or something about how unusual Nick of Time was as a song. It was just kismet, you know, a bunch of things, VH1 
started and they I asked Dennis Quaid to star in the video with me so I could be sexy without taking my clothes off and at 40 and and he flirted with me in the video for thing called love so that got on the TV cuz he's a big star and you know AAA radio I mean at that point it was a- AOR radio college radio there was all these formats that weren't around 5 years before if Nick of Time had come out in 85 it wouldn't have been a hit so it was just all the stars lined up so I was already completely thrilled that the tour did so well and all the reviews came in and it sold so well. But then I got the nomination for album of the year and those three other ones and I just couldn't believe it. So nobody expected me to win. So it was literally like unreal Cinderella story. And I not only that, but I got to move to Northern California where I'd always wanted to live. So I, I can't even think of anybody whose life was changed more by winning awards ever than what I got with Nick of Time. You mean moving to Northern California, just to be yeah, clear. Yeah, from LA. I mean, I just, I got to have Ricky Fatar in my band and pay, play a di- different level of musicians, come on the road with me, you know, play to 20,000 people sometimes, go to Europe via the Nelson Mandela release at Wembley Stadium. You know, I was like invited to all the cool stuff and I, I could go on TV and talk about all my causes and the Rhythm and Blues Foundation so on every single level, personally, you know, sobriety was a huge break in my life. And then Nick of Time doing that well was just cha- life-changing. And still, I'm still reaping the benefits of it. Okay, needless to say, I like Luck. I think Luck of the Draw is an even better album than Nick of Time. Not that Nick of Time isn't great. I No, I, I would agree with you. I think Luck of the Draw is really good. I Thank you. What was it like having that? What pressure did you feel with a follow-up? I didn't even think about it. I just got the best songs I could. You know, I, I'm used to not selling. You know, I was I was happy that I got that moment in the sunshine there. I wasn't expecting another shot. And then when the record did even better, it was completely a thrill. Yeah, it was great. And going back to Nick of Time, talk about turning 40. Your friends are having babies. Any regrets that you didn't have children or live the life to a degree these other people did? Absolutely not. I was not cut out for the wife and mother thing. And um, I have too much respect for motherhood to do it in a half-assed way. You know, my dad was gone a lot. And I I, I would, you know, if I had a wife, I might have had a kid. But I just, I just didn't feel the call. I wanted to be the captain of my own ship and only be responsible for my life. And so I was really very much focused on shepherding the older generation of R&B and blues artists. That's where my children were, was getting attention and royalty reform and support for the great generation that was responsible for all of us being where we are today and you and I speaking. And Ruth Brown and Charles Brown and the Coasters and the Drifters and Sam and Dave and the Temptations never participated in any royalties. So that was my, that was my mission, not having kids. Now, you did get married once, and as we've established, you certainly have a history of romances. Was that one and done? Would you get married again? Do you want to uh, live I, alone? You know, I mean, we decided, you know, at our age that Michael and I were at, we said, you know, if we were still together in a year and a half, let's just give it a get, let's just make a commitment. And, you know, it's something I'd never done. And I said, you know, he's Catholic, and I was going, okay, let's do it. And, we had a Buddhist Catholic Quaker ceremony, 
And, um, you know, our lives just, we, we were fine for a while, but our careers just took us in two separate places. And we just, we just couldn't find enough continuity in the relationship to work on the stuff we needed to work on. So we parted as friends and, you know, he's, he's remarried and has a kid and is very happy. And I'm happy to be living out here. And I got my situation really great too. So it was fine for a while as all the relationships have been. I don't, I don't regret any of them. Let's just go back to uh, you were talking about Dick Waterman and touring the South and going on tour with the Stones. So you go to Harvard. How do you ultimately get involved in the scene? And how does it end up that you go with Dick through the South, never mind to Europe? Um, a small, uh, let's, what do you call it? An anecdote. Jujemson Theaters in New York is run by Jack Vertel, who was my classmate at Harvard another blues crazy crazy for the blues guy we were really good friends he calls me up and says i just listened to sunhouse on our friend david gessner on the hrb blues show on harvard radio station dick waterman who rediscovered sunhouse lives in cambridge sun is at dick's house we can go and meet sunhouse and so he called me and we went over and met him and my life changed that day Okay. You know that? Do you ever read the book White Bicycles that talks all about that? What's no. his name? The record Nick, was producer. Was that a Nick Pearls? No, no. It was the record producer. What's his name? I'll look it up while we're talking. But um, but White Bicycles, what a title. Right. But uh, and it literally says, you know, these people were at Harvard, the epicenter in Cambridge, and they said all these blues guys, their numbers were in the phone book. And a lot of them work at oh. straight jobs, and they called, well, come play Cambridge. And they did. You know, these white kids invited them. And how did you end up taking time off and touring the South? Oh, I well, I mean, I took a semester off because Dick and I were involved, and I also wanted to hang out with all the blues guys that came through his place. He moved. The Club 47 closed in the spring of my freshman year in 68, Dick moved to Philadelphia where uh, he was the, the blues guys would come on the way to their gigs that he booked. He had Avalon Productions. He had all the blues guys under one to be able to collectively bargain with the club owners and get them better pay because the club owners would go, why should I pay 800 for Book of White when I can get Mississippi John Hurt for 500? And Dick said, that's not right. You know, let so he, he kept them and working at the right amount of time with the right hours of driving in between gigs not working them to death, giving them the respect and the fee that they deserved. And I thought Dick was great for doing it. And so I took a semester off and started playing in the Northeast. He put me on some shows. And I went back to school for the rest of my junior, my sophomore year and uh, just started. Then I made a record. And next thing I knew, I was on tour playing folk clubs, mostly on both coasts. I didn't really tour the South till I open with Jackson Brown at my first national tour in 74. And the author of uh, White Bicycles is the record producer, Joe Boyd. Oh, I know Joe, yeah. Right. So, yeah. what's the future? But I mean, maybe Gary Davis, Reverend Gary Davis might have been in the phone book, but the rest of the blues guys didn't live anywhere near the East Coast. As I said, I didn't read the book recently, so I don't want to go on record. Reverend Gary Davis is mentioned in the book, but whatever yeah Tell everybody out the blues guys lived down south fred mcdowell lived in como mississippi and son lived in rochester and you know there was a lot of 
a lot of guys that, um, anyway, it was a great opportunity to be able to learn and hang out with some of the greatest blues artists of all time. And I'll be forever grateful to Dick Waterman for introducing me to them. Now, you used to have a lot of these people uh, open for you, but what is the future of the blues? Well, a lot of the first generation and subsequent generations of people have passed away, but, you know, Buddy is still around, and um, there's a handful of people still touring and playing at a really high level, but there's some great up-and-coming. Marcus King, there's a lot of, you know, there's there's a lot of fans of blues festivals. I think the blues is in good hands. Whether the artists can make any money, you know, I just hope people, we can negotiate so that, the streaming services can pay better you know we're just working hard to get that and the songwriters to get paid more and directly so that's a whole nother thing so what's your number one pinch me moment oh gosh oh i love that question um oh when ella fitzgerald and natalie cole said album of the year and mentioned my name i mean i don't even remember i i was in hyperspace within you know, I, there's a picture of me looking like the Edward Munch, the scream. You know, I mean, I just, that was a pinch me moment. And what are your two favorite Jackson Brown songs? Oh, my God. <sighs> that first album is, you know, looking into you. <sighs> Song for Adam. I, I, it's very hard. Bright Baby Blues is about Lowell, and I, I don't, I'm trying to narrow it down. Looking into you, and okay, how about Late for the Sky? Late for the Sky, unbelievable. And also the last- Unbelievable, unbelievable. You never knew what I loved in you, you don't, I don't know what, you never knew what I loved in you, you, you don't know what you love, I don't know what you loved in me, maybe a picture of somebody I was, you were hoping I might I, be. I know. That I'm is the essence. I'm getting goosebumps just, you know, the guy's a genius. And the other night he did an hour opening set and then he came back and played an hour and a half and it was just one after the other of incredible music. The other one is the last song on the first side, the title track, We goes, and it took me a long time to get into it, about two years after the album came out in 74, dreaming of the perfect love, holding it so far above that if you stumbled onto someone real, you'd never know. Oh God, he's so profound, and so and you know between him and Prine and Richard Thompson, at at that age, you know that young to be that insightful is just astonishing. Well, look at Dylan. Come on, does he have a new Chronicles episode? Is there that like was another- just in the that was just in the paper today? The New York Times yep. has excerpts. I can't uh, wait. Right, and then the reason I say too is the Kinks have that song a line in Sunny Afternoon. Give me two good reasons why I ought to stay. And that's, that's why good. I always ask too. And good, that's good. I'm glad you told me that. And finally, your set list, unlike a lot of your contemporaries, is not identical every night. How Almost. do you how do you choose what to play? Well, there's an arc of how to set up the three big ballads in the course of an hour and a half. I mean, when we're not having a big headliner on the show with us, a, a co-bill that's more like a double bill, I have an hour and I almost have two hours so I can fit more in. But in this instance, it's really tough to, I Can't Make You Love Me has to be set 
in the right place, Angel from Montgomery, and then one of the ballads from the new album. So I I just learned how to put together a good show. And and so there's pieces in the show that blues, there's about four songs that take different, maybe four or five that I, I swap out, you know, depending on which city I'm in and who's in the audience that are friends of mine. I might do the In Excess song or I might do the Bonnie Hayes song, you know, so there's there's ones that keep it interesting for me, but do is there enough time to go back and play all my favorites? No. It's very frustrating. How many songs are rehearsed? Oh my gosh, probably 40. Okay, so you I have mean, we those. have two new guys. I mean, my older guys know many, many more than that. You know, the guys have been with me since the early 80s and the early 90s. They know many more songs cuz they've played on the records. So the two new guys I think they know maybe 35 songs, 40 songs. Okay. Well, you'll be going on the road soon. I want to thank you so much for you, taking Bob. the time out. And, I'm you know, taking my time. Thank that's you. for sure. But, you know, I can tell you stories of being in Jackson Hole. I'm going to tell the story very quickly, then I'm going to go. So, there's a place called the Million Dollar Cowboy Bar in Jackson, I've Wyoming. I've seen it. I've only been there a couple of times, but I know which one you're talking about. So, uh, the stools are cowboy seats. There's silver dollars in the bar, and they served golden Cadillacs, a drink of 1974, and there were girls dancing on the dance floor. This was a weeknight in April. And I went over to dance with him, and some guy came over and threw me right to the floor. And, wow. And, you know, these are cowboys, and it's not like, so I look at the guy who had only met that day, and we run out of there into his Ford Econoline van, which he was living in, and first he turns the key, it doesn't start. Then he turns it again, it does start. And we're driving to Teton Village, which is about 10 or 15 minutes. It's one of those absolutely clear nights. And in the old days, he had a, like a briefcase of cassettes. And the odds of having somebody, you know, having anything other than the hits were low. And I looked through it, and I saw it taking my time. Oh, said, <laughs> yay. And I said, I got to play. I feel the same. And put it in the cassette deck, played it under the big Wyoming sky. And I'm telling you the story Thank now. Thank you. Thank you, because I love that song. I love that recording. I love Chris Smither. Absolutely. I mean, we share a lot of the same love for the same music for the same reason. So I'm always fascinated to read your letter. And thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, 
fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.